Welcome to the Jackie Service Show. I'm Jackie Service, where we are talking all things people strategy, entrepreneurship, and how hiring the right humans will unlock the next phase of growth in your business. As a former corporate VP of HR, my life completely shifted when I learned I had a brain tumor. From this moment forward, I knew that there was more. I dove headfirst into healing, mindset work, and spirituality. And from this space, my entrepreneur journey was born. Now I am a people strategist and founder of Serve Recruitment Agency, a boutique recruitment firm that helps scaling companies hire aligned leaders for growth. In this podcast, I'm going to share about my business journey, entrepreneurship, leadership, and how hiring the right humans unlocks massive potential. Welcome to the show. Are you confused about hiring? You're not alone. Majority of leaders struggle to figure out who they need, in what roles, and when, and how these people will have the greatest impact on the growth of their business. This is why we created People Strategy Sessions to do a deep dive into your business and help you build a clear roadmap on the talent you need to drive sustainable growth. We dive into your greater why, where you are today in your business, where you want to go in your business from a growth standpoint, and ultimately, who do you need to enable that growth overall? For more information, please send an email to Jackie at JackieService.com or feel free to reach out at JackieService across all platforms. Welcome back to another episode of the Jackie Service Show. We are diving deep on a topic that I am passionate about, and I brought on two incredible attorneys and who have background in M&A, all in tech and SaaS-based businesses. Omid, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks for Jackie. having us. This is going to be fun. We had a lot of uh, talk off camera around just some of the comparisons of our backgrounds and how I have worked kind of on people side from an HR orientation. And my friends here have worked on the, you know, attorney side from a law standpoint. And it'll be really fun for us to open up some dialogue around M&A deals and employee retention and redundancies and multiple topics we're going to dive into today. Yeah, sounds good. Before we go there, I always like to start with a little bit of rapid fire so our listeners can get to know you guys a little bit better, understand a bit more about your background, um, and then we'll talk your stories. Sounds good. Let's let's start with Joe. I'm going to go Joe first, and then I'm going to go Omid, because this is my first time doing a dual interview. I feel like I got to ask rapid fire questions to both of you. I'll just tap him. I'll tap him in. Amazing. Here we go. All right. Joe's going first. Sure. Where were you born? Oh, St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh my goodness. And where's home now? Uh, Spokane, Washington. You went as far away from home as you could without becoming Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I almost have the accent. (laughs) You know what? Well, not everyone on this call is so great with Canadian geography. So I'm happy to have you on the call. You're our neighbor. We we, we love having you (laughs) We love having you be our Shots fired. Shots are fired. Shots fired. All right. Favorite book, a book that you love getting in the hands of everybody. Can be business, mindset, anything in between. I don't know about getting in the hands of everybody because it's a preference. I always love The Great Gatsby was my favorite. But I have a lot of, I mean, I could go down that 
pipe with you. I have a lot of favorites. So I have, there's literally a stack of books to my right. <laughs> I was going to say, where's the library in the house? Because usually <laughs> entrepreneurs who are running successful companies have a lot of books everywhere. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. There's a bunch of cool ones related to business. Um, but yeah, I'll stick with The Great Gatsby. Love it. Love it. Favorite mentor or somebody in your life that made a great impact on leading you to what you're doing today? Um, also non-traditional, it was uh, my first martial arts teacher, Taki Kimura. Um, he's kind of a, a highly renowned uh, martial arts teacher in the States. Um, sadly, he passed around two years ago. Mm. And what was it? What was it that he taught you? Or what do you remember? What did you oh, really take away from him? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so he was one of Bruce Lee's three st uh, student teachers mm -hmm. um, over in Seattle. And so he would teach the the Taoist Bruce Lee philosophy, which is like, you know, master something. You know, it's it's, you know, it's kind of this is a common martial arts thing. It's learn something, master it, and then forget it and let it become naturally with you. So a lot of people kind of get too boxed in with their learnings and that actually obstructs them from free flow, free flow, both physically and mentally uh, outside of physical activities. And so that's, that's one of the learnings. There was a lot of little pithy philosophical learnings there uh, in that, uh, we'll call it dojo school, we call it a school. I love that. Thank you for sharing. I, I grew up an athlete and so I swam for Canada and uh, oh. there's like a level of consciousness or unconsciousness that shows up around flow state to your point. Once you, once you've learned something, you've mastered something and then you let go and there's a surrendering that happens. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm not sure if you've experienced that in martial arts, but there's been moments I can remember where I'm no longer consciously thinking about what I'm doing. It's just happening. And you move into such a beautiful flow state. And sometimes, you know, I can go back to my race days and like, those were my best races. I was out of my head. I was in my body and I just allowed the fundamentals to be there from a flow state. So I, I deeply resonate with that. That landed with me. Thank you for sharing. That's really, that's really cool. That's one thing I judge experts by nowadays too, where if I feel like they're getting caught up and, in things or you can kind of get that like insecure vibe but when you're in that flow point of flow you're usually really confident just moving through stuff and that's always in a, a red flag for me if if somebody i'm hiring is not confident and easily flowing through the work <laughs> i love that oh we'll talk about hiring as we go all right tag in your partner in crime we're gonna go to oh me now um, all right I'm same ready. questions we're going from the top where were you where were you born the land of Wizard of Oz. I come from where Dorothy comes from, Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas. Okay. And home now? Uh, home now is Cincinnati. Also known as Cincy. We talked about Cincy. that offline. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It has some other names too, like the Nasty Natty. For I've example. heard about the Natty. <laughs> That's, you know, the, the Kelsey brothers talk about the Natty a lot. So if we're going to be relevant to mainstream, you know, I definitely <laughs> have heard that too. I've definitely heard that. Yeah. All right. The only time I've been to Wichita, Kansas is I used to work for PepsiCo and they had a Frito-Lay manufacturing facility there. And I once did go to Wichita, Kansas. So oh. only once. 
yeah be a, like a handful of people that probably have ever traveled there so yeah I, I'm not sure I can't remember what hotel I stayed in but there they weren't plentiful there was only a few and yeah it was yeah it's kind of one of those American cities that really mm-hmm. has gone downhill too um it it kind of used to be very different than it is now so mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting watching uh kind of how cities change in the way they do because yeah it's just not it's like a shell of what it used to be yeah. now it is interesting when you see industry come in and out right if industry comes in and out or depending what the what the town is built on i'm in a small community now on lake huron in ontario and um one of the largest nuclear facilities in the world is 40 minutes from me i don't have any association with them i'm not working for them but everyone local is I'd say 99% of people who are local are employed by them. There's an incredible amount of engineers and very smart, sophisticated people who've moved to the area, which has really brought to the town so much infrastructure, which has been just interesting to see. Now, I can remember as a kid in the 90s when that facility actually closed down. Mm -hmm. And this town is like a summer town. It's a beach town in the summer. And a lot of people will come here for cottaging. But the locals, the actual local population just completely got decimated because the industry was no longer available and we are kind of outside city centers and you know before before covid remote work wasn't really embraced as frequently as it is now it's it's almost just a way of life now whereas you know i remember being in a lot of corporations where asked for a friday every other week at home and it was you know it was like career suicide it was absolutely not like you needed to be in the office so Anyways, I have lived in, you know, I've lived in a small community where I've watched and witnessed kind of how things can ebb and flow depending on what's happening in in, in the market itself. Um, okay, so Wichita, Kansas, we now live right. in, we now live in Cincy. Yep. One of your fave books, fave books that you love getting in the hands of people. Um, my favorite book is The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, so I read it five years ago. Um, I was already like into personal development before I read that book, but like that really sparked my like passion for personal development. I loved the book so much. I started reading it at like 10 a.m. in the morning. I finished it by 10 p.m. in the evening, and then I stayed up until four o'clock in the morning turning the entire book into a synthesized PowerPoint presentation that I that I then went, I love this book so much. <laughs> I love this book so much. I then went and like anyone who would give me like a moment, like I'd be like, hey, I made this PowerPoint presentation. Like, can I show you this? And then I would just like blow people's minds with this book. Mm-hmm. So the book is like 200 pages or something. I've I like reduced it, it to like a 40 pay, 40 slide uh, PowerPoint presentation and I literally would just like blow people's minds like with this like mini personal development like conference or something anytime anyone would be like you know just if I had like just like a little window I'd be like let me show you something <laughs> <laughs> so not only can you go to Omid and Joe for M&A deals in tech you can also go to Omid for your learning and development platform and go deep on the big leap <laughs> that's right it- it is a book though. One of the things I loved about the big leap is there are things that you can actually turn around and start doing, right? There's like a tactical, there's philosophy, but there's tactics within it that I love. Yeah. The um, ultimate success mantra, love you it. know, so good. So good. Yeah. It's a great book. If you have upper not limit problems, leap, phew, uh, 
Let's actually change the topic of this episode. No, no. See, you gave him the little bit. You gave him the edge. So Let me show you this PowerPoint presentation. So here's here's what we'll do. If you're listening and you want Omid's PowerPoint presentation, you have to follow him on Instagram. I'm going to link it up. And you need to send him the word big leap. Yes. And I if got you do you. that, he will he will send you over the PowerPoint presentation. I'm All ready. right. We're going... I'm uploading it to Dropbox right now. So. I love it. And this is gonna we're gonna see how much reach this podcast can get because we'll see who's actually listening and who wants the PowerPoint presentation. That's so funny. That's I love weird. it. So funny. I love it. Mentor, yeah. a mentor who has changed the trajectory of your life. Yeah, I love this question. I mean, it's like such an important question for me because um, a couple of years ago, I actually was going to write a book and the title of the book uh, was going to be Standing on the Shoulders of Giants um, because my other favorite book is Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, which is pretty much just like, you know, it's a thousand pages of interviews with the world's greatest, right? So I wanted to write this book, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, because mentors have been such a big part of my journey. Like I wouldn't be where I am today without mentors. And I've had good mentors and I've had bad mentors. And I would say that I think probably one of the most impactful mentors in my life actually was um, one of my therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, about three years ago, I was working with a man. His name was Tony Himes. I stumbled on him very accidentally. I wasn't looking to work with a therapist. Um, it just kind of happened and it connected in a very like magical and synchronistic way. And the reason why I credit him as, um, you know, one of my most impactful mentors is he just like really taught me how to access the power of vulnerability and the power that resides like in all of my feelings, not only the pleasant ones and like knowing how to, you know, embody those in a deeper and greater way, but also, you know, in my pain, um, how to really access that pain and the vulnerability and the authenticity that's in my pain. That's really the engine for everything that I do and makes me who I am. So Mm. impactful to say the least. I mean, the people who can, you know, I've worked with some pretty incredible therapists some pretty incredible executive coaches, um, done some really deep inner work through my own story And there are such pivotal moments and people who can pull you into fully seen in the mirror and allow you to be very vulnerable and break open. And I'm sensing from the both of you that, you know, we seem to be coming from the same, like cut from the same cloth where in a lot of ways, you know, high performers driven, really focused on building, you know, incredible things to serve the world. And so oftentimes, this is kind of white brushing, but so oftentimes I have always kind of thought this mentality of like that doing is where the results were going to be. And that was my worth. And this mm. flip to understanding that just being the being side of me is actually where my worthiness comes from has been a big unlock in my own inner world journey for the last decade of realizing that my worth is not dictated around the results I produce in the world. It's about who I am as an energetic being and how I can serve. So I yeah. love that. I love that I, you've had that experience. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I do. I do feel that vibe with you. I was definitely one of those type A or whatever it was who was 
just really hardcore high performer. And Omid was actually, we've been friends for like almost 10 years, 10 years, almost 10 years almost, now. Yeah. And uh, he was actually one of the people in my life who influenced me to do inner work and to take off that American, uh, you know, I not so much anymore nowadays, but you know, that old school American mentality where it's like toughen up buttercup. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he was definitely pivotal in relation to that for me. And it, it, it was an unlock for me too, definitely. I mean, that's that's so mm -hmm. central to life, but enough about, enough about that. Well, no, could, please go on. <laughs> we, we could spend the whole conversation here. Now I want, now that people have gotten to know a little bit more about who you are, I'd love people to understand what you do. Like, how do you serve clients? How have we created this business? Maybe if you can just synthesize that so then we can start to pull a pe uh, pull apart some questions from there. Yeah, Omid, why don't you introduce yourself and the firm and then I'll introduce myself a little bit just in light of that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm Amid, um, and a um, little bit, you know, about how we came to do what we do. Um, so a little bit about my background. Uh, I started as a U.S. staffer in the Senate, working with the business community. That's kind of like where I found my passion for business. I always thought that I was going to be a criminal defense attorney. That's like why I went to law school. I saw Law and Order. I was like, oh, this is awesome. I want to do this. Like, um, you know, clerked at the public defender's offices, both in Cincinnati and in Washington, D.C. So I was at the public defender's office for almost eight years um, mm -hmm. prior to even graduating law school. Um, and then when I got out of law school, a friend offered me a job at the senator's office. And that's when I got to connect with the business community and kind of do advocacy work and community building and that sort of thing. Um, and representing the interests of the business community. I was like, these people are awesome. They're rock stars. And like the big conversation there was like, oh, if you like really want to change people's lives, it's not, you know, through, uh, through you know, probation programs or helping them through the criminal justice system. It's actually jobs. And so these business owners were like championed. And I, I look at them like, God, they're so cool, you know. Um, and that's really where the passion for business started. And then from there, you know, um, worked at a number of different law firms, Gordon and Reese, one of the largest law firms in the country, worked in-house at Hyperloop, worked in-house at a couple other places, and then have also worked with, you know, kind of the top um, tech uh, accelerators and incubators, plug and play, 500 startups, so on and so forth. And that's like where I, you know, kind of just developed that love for software and tech and entrepreneurship kind of in that different flavor of things. So that's a little bit of uh, the background in terms of, and it's, a, so the background has always been like corporate M&A business mm -hmm. um, since the beginning. And about two years ago, Joe and I, um, you know, we're already working on the firm. We had some clients coming in, but it was like just like a kind of random conversation that I think that we had. We were just on the phone one day, you know, as you mentioned, we've been friends for almost 10 years. So we were just chatting and and Joe happened to mention something. And he's like, man, I miss doing M&A deals. Mm -hmm. And I was like, <laughs> hey, if you want to do M&A deals, we can do M&A deals. And that was kind of how the neat, that was the first iteration of the niching. So 
we niche, you know, because we were just kind of doing general corporate business and then we niched into MA and then now we've further niched into SaaS. So that's okay. kind of the journey and how we got to where we're at. Amazing. SaaS for our listeners that don't know is software as a service. Thank you. Um, I always like, I just assume people know sometimes and then I get questions from the podcast later. I'm like, I got to start to break down some of the words because we speak in acronyms a lot, especially if you come from the world of tech. And I've realized, okay, sometimes we need to bring our listeners with us on these journeys. So yeah, I love I love the journey that you're working on now. So M&A, primarily SaaS-based today. Is that the firm? That's what the firm fo- is focused on? That's correct. Fabulous. Amazing. Joe, a little bit more on, on your background. Yeah, sure. That and just to kind of clearly plug the firm there, it's our law firm's name is Optimist Legal. And, um, you know, we do do we do geographically, we do global. And people often ask us which states we do the entire the, U, the US. That's how MA works. Um, so we even have one deal in Brazil right now and just did an Ireland cross border deal. Um, that, that connects to my background. So I'm from Washington State. I went to UW Law School. Um, I have this weird connection with Japan as, you know, the West Coast is so, you know, ha- has so often that Asian influence and being in Seattle, as you can imagine, there was a huge influence there for me, too. Indeed, that's where I met Taki Kimura, right? And so um, I had actually lived in Japan for a really long time. I've lived in Japan for eight years or almost eight. It's like probably like seven and three quarters or something if I counted it. I had studied abroad there in law school and in college at the two of the top universities in Japan, um, one of them being the, the number one university in Asia. And I, I was really influenced by the culture and everything there. So I ended up uh, going there and starting my legal career out of law school, out of the UW. And I started out at the number one international M&A firm. And for anybody who doesn't know, also this acronym, Mergers and Acquisitions, of course, uh, M&A firm in the world. They're called Freshfields Bruckhaus Steringer. I worked in their cute little, you know, 20 lawyer Tokyo uh, office. Most of the international offices in, in Tokyo are kind of like that satellite fashion, 20 to 50 attorneys. Um, worked in M&A and finance there. Um, I had I had also actually had a passion for wanting to do litigation out of law school. It just wasn't the market at the time. I could not find in Japan a litigation job. Uh, ended up in M&A and finance, didn't know what I was doing. So I read like 10 books before my interviews and figured it out, ended up loving it, really enjoying uh, complex, big transactional work. A lot of people say contract and that type of work's boring, but to me, it's really like, logical and mathematical and there's like basic it's like you know it's like a science in a way there's there's common standards of knowledge that you share with other professionals in the space so i went on to move from fresh fields to baker mckenzie another top firm there this firm's an american firm most people know them in the states worked there in their japan office i'd also done some other things like i clerked at the securities and exchange commission prior to all this and summer at a different law firm in Tokyo too, and yada, 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 other background there too. And ultimately I uh, went and worked in-house at startups, like Omid mentioned he did. We met because we were both working at Hyperloop, that Elon Musk ideated business that Richard Branson briefly uh, participated in. Mm -hmm. And uh, we met there as in-house, the first two in-house lawyers outside of the, the founder one of the founders was an attorney. 
Um, and we, we really kicked it off there. We both stayed in startups for a while until we created our own law firm. So a few years of doing startups, I built and sold a few businesses, kind of got older. I didn't have, I didn't have all that infinite energy that you have in your twenties, or at least I had in my twenties where I was like, okay, I'll go build another business. Now I'm like, nah, we'll do something we know really well and we do it really well. Mm. And that's M&A. And we serve our clients really well. And we're just, we just enjoy, we're more value centered also at the firm. So we just enjoy our work. We put hard work in, but we, we don't do like 12 hour days. It's and like mind numbing, you know, stuff like that's not how it works. And uh, so that really br brings us up to today. And now we're, you know, we do the firm. We have a M&A, a SaaS M&A podcast called the SaaS Buyers Club. And we're so happy to uh, be talking with you today. Yeah, amazing. Thank you both for sharing your background and just giving some context into where you came from and how you ended up here. You know, in a lot of ways, my background's similar from an HR perspective of being, I'll call it a generalist or thinking I was going to go in one direction from a career standpoint, mm -hmm. operating like a generalist. When I left a uh, large corporation, ended up um, being a fractional head of HR for many tech startups. And although I can spread across end-to-end -end HR capacity because of my background, my passion has been talent since day one. I love bringing epic people to great companies. And, you know, I now call it like modern day matchmaking, right? Like I'm literally matchmaking mm -hmm. the best players in the world with the best companies in the world. And for me, that's just something that lights me up and I can see the impact it has on the founders and leaders immediately. So I feel like that service arm for me is also, you know, my mission is so much bigger than self. So it's interesting because I've gone from large scale HR down to, you know, we'll say kind of executive recruiting talent for growth companies. I'm hearing the same for both of you. You have these incredible experiences and backgrounds where you can really go across so many different areas within, within law. And you've really niched down to say, we're going to do M&A and we're going to do it really well for this SaaS-based style company. So I'm curious yeah. for you guys, like since you've niched down, since you've since you've like really become clear on that profile for yourselves, how has that changed your business as entrepreneurs and leaders? Oh gosh, I definitely have a response, but Omid, why don't you go ahead first? If you already have one, go ahead, Joe. Oh, sure. Well, one thing is, is from a workflow perspective, things are so simple. So I'm one of those attorneys that got kicked off, like I said earlier, into really big, complex transactions, dealing with multiple countries' laws. And in M&A, in, in the fine type of finance I was doing, it wasn't just one type of law. You had to know several different bodies of law. So that's just how I grew up as an attorney. But on Omid's inside, it was like, let's do this one thing again and do it really well. Uh, I, it's not something I would have chosen to do. And when we did choose to do it, everything just became so smooth and easy. And I wasn't seeking easy legal work, you know, in that that's kind of part of the philosophy of effortlessness, right? It's like, you shouldn't be trying to make everything hard for yourself. And this was, that was a learning I had in relation to our firm, which was make everything smooth and comfortable and work and fit together really well. And, and work just became easy in that way, which is a, a good thing from it's highly effective results, but it's not a uh, very stressful is what I mean to say when I say easy. Yeah, I get that. And coming from, 
you know, it's interesting as high performers, sometimes I think we seek out high stress environments because to us, yeah. again, that equates to worthiness of, oh, I can play in this arena. If I can play in this arena, then it means insert whatever meaning you create around that. But for myself, it's, you know, it's almost like a badge of honor, right? That like I could play <laughs> yeah. with, with the big guys and I could like stand with you and go toe to toe with you. And, you know, I, I've had a very similar experience as I've really come to reality that, you know, I was running away from one of my biggest gifts of like, I was kind of sugarcoating and and doing a hundred different things. And I wasn't doing anything really well. And the minute I just said enough's enough, like my gift is this, this is what I've always done. It's been a piece of who I've been since day one. And I know I can support people in this. It unlocked so much more clarity. It made, it made, I even think about like, we're all podcasters here when I've been able to talk to my audience, it makes so much more sense as to like why I'm talking about certain topics, why I'm bringing certain top like guests on because I was confusing myself and therefore I was confusing everybody that was listening into me. And Gosh. now that people have the clarity, it's like, oh, that's the girl that does executive recruiting. Exactly. Yeah. It's the same with you guys. I'm like, oh, those are the guys that do law for SAS, M&A. Cool. Now, if I'm ever in a boardroom and I hear that, you're my immediate referral. Yeah, that's it's so true, you know, and I would go so far as to comment that, like, uh, you know, nowadays, everybody has this, oh, I can take a challenge mentality. But when you get older, you're kind of like, hey, I've taken enough challenges. Now I'm just going to get some stuff done in a really efficient way. It's just a different mentality. I, I still do mistakenly take challenges here and there. Yeah, but... Joe loves <laughs> the complexity aspect of things. Um, and it, yeah. I'm just, I'm actually going to take the conversation in a little yeah. bit of a different direction and no just point. say like, you know, um, someone that we know mutually, Jackie says like, go be world-class, you know? So yeah. that's what we're here to do. And that was really one of the big reasons why we niched was like, you know, as Joe mentioned, we're both entrepreneurs. We both built businesses. We've both been successful in business in addition to having successful legal careers. And in that understanding, like in building this law firm, we really want to do things differently here in terms of when you come to us, we're not those stodgy lawyers that don't understand how business works. Mm -hmm. And that's actually reflected even internally within our own business in terms of the way that it operates. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, niching down, it was like, cool. We have a product. What is our product? This is our product. How do we like take this service and turn it into a product such that like we can deliver world-class service, we can be the best and you know deliver the best service? Well, the way that we can do that is just by picking one specific thing that we do and doing it exceptionally well. And that's what we're here to do. I love that. So much goodness in that, in that sentiment and completely in alignment with my own life and uh Listen, we're trying to change the game of what people think when they think about lawyers and HR. Okay, let's be honest. Like we're trying not to be your stodgy policy payroll HR girl and your no, that's not possible lawyers. We're like, let's let's work together. We're clearly business oriented, which is which is a ton of fun. Right. Let's go a little deeper in the MA side of things. I'm so curious about where the deals, where do you show up in the deals and how do you get involved? Are you coming in an M&A on a client side or are you coming from the buyer side? What does that all look like? And how do you really, how do you support the M&A deal? Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I'll take this one. Go uh, for it. If you okay. Uh, to put it really simply, you know, if you're buying or selling a business, 
or if you're even financing in relation to the acquisition of a business. So if you're like an investor in a small PE fund or something, we represent all of those parties. And what usually ends up happening in the most often case is it's like a seller, a founder, he's getting burnt out. Or maybe if it, you know, in, in other businesses, not necessarily SaaS because of the generational issue, but people are in other business industries, people are retiring or their 60s or 70s or they're getting divorced. And it's a trigger event for them to sell their business. So that's when they start seeking a broker and a lawyer. We get in at that time. It's important to engage your we just had a deal the other day where the buyer didn't want a lawyer. It's funny when you're, when you're dealing with the multi-million dollar transaction, there's always supposed to be a lawyer involved in your side, unless you don't like, unless you like losing your money, which I know nobody likes, but you'd be shocked. So working at big firms, you learn very clearly like, Oh, where a lawyer is supposed to be at. And that's something that we take really to heart and ensure that people engage counsel on if it's if your transactions above 500 grand i mean i'd say you definitely need a lawyer on all contracts you do but you know that's what you would do and then we do we do uh, for the workflow there's kind of like a, a really cookie cutter set of things that attorneys do i won't go through all of it but basically you know we do the agreements we negotiate we make sure you get the right terms because you're not going to get the right terms if you don't have an attorney and you know, you, you might think everything's a form on the internet and that is simply not how the world works. That's kind of like thinking <laughs> doctors are WebMD. It's not yeah. true. And so we do contracts, we do due diligence, things of that sort. Awesome. Okay. That's helpful just to get a sense of like, where do you play and what side do you play? It sounds like pretty holistic around M&A as an entirety. I'm curious for you, when you work with founders of companies, what are some of the limiting beliefs that show up when we're about to do a deal? Mm. That's a, yeah. I mean, you know, um, so I would say I'm actually going to take one concept and I'm going to apply it two different ways. Um, and so one of the limiting beliefs that often I think founders have um, is I won't be able to get anything from my company. I won't be able to sell my company. You know, I think something like 90% of businesses shut down, for example. Um, people never think that they're able to sell their company or they just don't explore that. And actually, a couple of the guests that have come on our podcast have talked about how, yeah, you know, they were very close to like literally clicking the button to shut their company down. And they were just like, oh, why don't I just list it on a on a listing platform? And they listed it on the listing platform. They like accidentally connected with a broker on the listing platform and the broker ended up getting them 10 times what they had listed it for on the platform, for example. Wow. So that's one limiting belief. Now, the flip side of that belief is founders thinking that they can get a lot more <laughs> for their companies than they're really worth and shooting themselves in the foot around that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that same kind of limiting belief applies almost um, mirroredly in like either they think they'll get nothing or they want way too much and they're completely unreasonable about what they're looking for. And so they're mm -hmm. unable to sell their mm -hmm. companies. I have um, one more, but I, I want to pass the mic to Joe and make sure that, you know, he has an opportunity no, to share if you have one. Okay. So the, um, the, uh, the other one too is something that we uh, developed. It's called the exit sweet spot. 
the exit sweet spot is like uh it's the place where your business would sell for its highest value mm. and the limiting belief there for a lot of founders is I'm going to be the next Google. I'm going to be the next, you know, Uber. I'm going to be the next billion dollar unicorn. Whereas like, you know, if you could sell your business and walk away with 10 million, you know, in the pocket, as opposed to waiting a couple of years and then maybe only walking away with like two to three for example, because you just waited too long to sell your business and then you got burnt out and now, you know, your business just doesn't have the same value anymore. Well, you just shot yourself in the foot kind of just being overzealous as opposed to, I think a lot of really experienced founders, what they recognize is like, no, this is actually the perfect time to sell Mm -hmm. people that have had like multiple exits, like know what the process is. They know how the game is played um, and they really maximize, you know, their, their value, um by yeah just identifying like this probably is the best time to just you know pull the trigger and and get out of here and get as much as i can out of this business so those are some of the limiting beliefs joe you got anything to add the thing is is there's so many um i I think we we should stick with those but yeah buyers and sellers going through the transaction usually they aren't m&a you know professionals they're they're professional operators or software engineers very often Mm-hmm. And so they're they're really stepping into a territory in which they don't have any expertise. And as part of that, we guide them through the process and we we try to talk them through some of these things. But sometimes people are so stuck in their beliefs, you know, it kills the transaction that that happens. Yeah. All right. Let's walk a scenario through. So I work a lot of the times in-house with CEO and founder. They'll come to me when they're burnt out or feeling like they're playing the role of leader and operator within their business at the same time. So we have this uh, moment that shows up where, you know, their genius is really to step up and out of the day-to-day operations of the business. So, you know, we can call it, if we go to kind of Wickman's philosophy and EOS, like they're the visionary of the company, right? And they need that number two COO, sometimes it's CTO, GM, we can call it a hundred different things depending on the particular founder. But ultimately, they need that number two to come in and operationalize the business so they can focus on funding or focus on the vision of the company or be on stages speaking about the company, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's generally where I come in. I'm curious for you guys, from a counsel standpoint, like if I'm listening to a founder that's sharing about a business, how would I be able to discern if it's actually on the table for them to consider due diligence around a sale? What does the perfect exit actually look like? Like, when is the perfect time? How can I, how would I know that, or what would I be looking for? Yeah, there, there are factors that go into determining that exit sweet spot. Omi, do you want to hit on a few of them? Yeah, I mean, I think the primary one um, is you know, a a buyer is going to look for a cash flowing business, right? Mm-hmm. So, got to be cash flowing. So, you know, that's a given, right? No one really wants to buy. Um, you know, a dying business for the most part, like it it needs to, to, to be a healthy business. And the other aspect of the healthy business is actually operationally. Um, if, yeah, if it's dialed in to the place where, you know, the, um, founder no longer needs to be the operator, that's going to be another factor for sure that drives the highest value for the business as well, because yeah. it's an, it's a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Um, and so for sure, those two factors um, are 
what come up right up off the top of my head. Um, Joe, is there is there any others that come up for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll go through a few more. Firstly, to echo on Omid's thing about having the business dialed in, it is so important for when people are building a business, you got to do a lot of things. But there's a certain point where you have to not be doing a lot of things. Uh, that's a very like, dangerous step for founders. That's where people get burnt out and and companies get delimited by by that. And it's hard to because I've been there and I know what it's like. You're like, but I'm the one with the most information. I'm the one who should be doing this. Eventually, you have to grow out of that. And to sell a business, it's a huge deal because nobody wants to buy a business that requires the person who's leaving to run it. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we like to say is that if you what we like to say is that if you're in a business, you have to look at it like an asset, like an investment asset, even though you're running it and you have to understand its value at all times. And you have to always be working towards ensuring that there's that value there. So you should always make sure that you're the business is not dependent on you. Um, another key indicator is, in addition to other factors Amid mentioned, is, um, uh, oh gosh, it's not profitability. What was I going to say? Oh, I just had a brain fart. Uh, what I was going to say is your month over month growth is a huge indicator yeah. because that's particularly what's going to drive the highest multiple uh, on your business uh, to get the best price. Another thing is, yeah, no operational deficiencies. Um, yeah. uh, another thing is having a really strong moat. In SaaS, that's not always the case. If you're third or fourth in your category in SaaS and you're trying to sell your business and you have a lot of competitive price pressure, that's also going to be a problem for getting a good price to sell your business because really you're in war and nobody wants to buy a business in war. Yeah. And so related to that, going back to what's the right time to sell, it's really important to understand that say you're a leader in your space and you think the future is infinite, kind of going back to what Amit was talking about, and you are number one, but you can see in three years, oh, it's going to be really hard to eke out uh, the competition. There's a lot of people coming. That might be the time to sell. And you're not, it's not wrong to do that either, just to be clear. I'm not trying to say, oh, you're passing the buck somebody else. You might be selling to a PE fund who owns other businesses and that they'll be a good fit and strategically they'll be stronger in the future. So they won't have that problem. So in other words, if you're growing right now and you're the best in the space and everything's fine, you might not be inclined to sell, but very often that's exactly when you should be getting the cash for that big asset that you own and then diversifying it into other invest investments and potentially other startups. Mm, I love that. Thank you for the, for the, I'm learning, right? Like I'm just soaking that up and learning. And, and some of those I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm a big proponent of, I'll say this to business owners all the time. Like I'm not in business of bankrupting your business over hiring the right people. Like we need to be financially strong in order to think about the talent we want to bring in. Um, but I think some of those other kind of core areas to consider are really helpful and something I'll start to listen to intuitively when I'm like, hey, is this somebody that, you know, I need to bring Joe and Amit into to just at least have a conversation or maybe you have people in your network to have those conversations with. Um, mm -hmm. Because we work with likely a lot of the same, we will call it title, right? <laughs> We're working with a lot of the same CEOs, founders, PE firms, et cetera, in the space. It's always interesting when we can start to listen for those cues for one another. So I love that. Thank you for sharing. No, that's, that's a hundred percent. Yeah, that's hundred percent the case. And, you know, very often people like if you're, if your enterprise sales org is not going well, 
that's that can be a death knell for it for for so many reasons for the business and that might be a place where you do the recruiting for that person but having a person with experience exiting or putting the sales org in a place to exit two yes. to three years down the line even if the intention is not there but just doing that is standard is 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 the way people should be thinking about things not kind of just running on their own way but um, preparing an organization such that somebody else kind of standardized stuff is really what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Plan for the exit from the beginning is also the other thing that we say, like be that. ready to exit, like build yeah. your business as if you're going to exit. Yeah. Oh. If you have like, sorry to cut you guys off, but just to vibe off that, if you like, if you haven't, people don't think this way, but as lawyers, we think about the bad things that can happen so you can prevent them. Cause that's what we advise, how we advise our clients. Like if you get in an accident and your business depended on you, now your family is not going to have that. That business might go bankrupt. Your family is not going to have that cash flow. But if you planned for the exit from the beginning, you're literally going to have to make one, something bad happens to you or you just need the cash. Maybe family member needs big surgery or something. I don't know. Trying to give an example. Yeah. Uh, you can literally make one call if your business is exit ready to a broker and it'll be fairly easy and swift to sell your business. But if it's not, you're in for a world of headaches that you might not be ready to endure. And your decision-making shifts holistically when you're thinking about exit versus like there's thinking for legacy business and then there's thinking for exit, right? And, and sometimes the thinking changes in the decision-making around, you know, I even see from a people standpoint, where are we investing in talent right now to get this business set for exit versus where are we investing right now to get this set for 10 years of legacy? Like sometimes they're different decision-making that shows up in, in how founder is thinking. So I'd love that perspective. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Oh my gosh, guys, we could keep going. This is clearly, clearly this is wild. In the same how world. are we at the end of the, <laughs> the hour already? <laughs> We're clearly in the same world of, you know, I'm looking at it through people lens or looking at it through M&A, you know, from a law and deal standpoint. Um, and I would just say, like, I'm so grateful for, for the opportunity to get to know you guys a little bit better and understand really who you serve and how you serve them. And if somebody's listening in and they're, questioning like how do i know if i'm deal ready or how do i plan for exit or what does this look like from an MA due diligence standpoint that these guys are chatting about how do they get connected to you what's the best way for people to find you and reach out and connect with you yeah i'll i'll go first joe so um if you're if you have questions about exiting um, if there's anything that you want to know about the exit process if you're curious about the exit process if you've if you want to know more about how to sell your company, um, you can reach me on Instagram at SASBizLawyer. So on IG, it's at SASBizLawyer, S-A-A-S-B-I-Z-L-A-W-Y-E-R. And on LinkedIn, it's just my name, Omid Tabai, um, O-M-E-E-D-T-A-B-I-E-I. -E -E that one's like kind of a bit of a doozy so i'll go ahead and spell it out those are the two primary ways that um, are, are the best ways uh, that you can reach me and please do reach out we'd love to connect always love connecting with entrepreneurs and um, just pro providing value however i can so that's the best way to reach me yeah I'll, I'll shout out real quick so our you can go to our website and learn a bit a little bit more about us optimist o-p-t-i-m-i-s-t legal.com and also there's like a contact button there 
I'm not sure if it has my phone number on it, but it definitely has our emails. Amazing. So that's another way you could reach out to us too. And again, I want to echo the sentiment back. Thank you so much for having us. It was a really pleasant conversation. It was fun. I can tell there's so much more to talk about. And we definitely look forward to having you on our podcast sometime and we can continue our conversation. I love it. And we'll link it up on my show. We'll do the double. I'll come over. We'll keep the conversation going and link it, link it back <laughs> here. Um, yeah, I appreciate you guys so much. We'll link everything up in the show notes. So if you didn't catch the spelling of anything, don't worry. It's one click away. Check it, take a look at the show notes, get all the info that you need for these guys there. Joe, Omid, newfound friends. So grateful for you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Can't wait to see you guys again soon. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you for listening in to today's show. If there was a key message that landed with you, please share or send us a direct message on Instagram at Jackie Service and let us know. We love hearing from you. Also, to continue to keep this podcast growing, it would mean the world if you could take a minute and like and rate the show or share it with a friend. Our team is forever grateful. Until next time, we'll see you again on the Jackie Service Show.